Steve Vines joining me. It's 14 minutes past 10, and it's absolutely appropriate that Steve should be here today because it was the day in 1916 when Einstein published his theory of general relativity. So I thought this is our homage to Albie. <laughs> I was only 58 then. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> Yep, your theory of general what? relativity yes. to the truth. The truth. Ah, yes, the truth. Well, boy, I mean, has this been a period where people have been searching for the truth? And, of course, I'm talking about the disappearance of MH370, the Malaysian plane that's been not seen, not heard of. We have no idea what's happened for, what, 12 days now? Indeed. Which is extraordinary. It really is. I mean, even that Air France flight that disappeared on its way from uh, Rio de Janeiro to Paris. Um, and it took something like two years to work out, to find the black box and work out, um, you know, exactly what happened to that flight. But even in that case, and that was also a plane disappearing over a large ocean, um, I think within about five days or four or five days, they found some debris. So they had some indication at least where the plane went down. Now, the simple fact of the matter is... In the case of MH370, we actually know no more today, I mean, in terms of concrete, hard fact, yeah. than we knew 12 days ago. We've got no idea of any motive, no idea where the plane is, no idea of anything at all. So in this vacuum has filled endless theories, speculation, uh, people talking off the top of their heads about stuff, um, you, you know, we had this marvellous thing yesterday of the, 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 the Royal Thai Air Force saying, oh, yes, yes, we saw the plane um, just after it went, lost contact. We were tracking it by radar for, for several hours. And somebody asked this, this um, uh, Air Force guy, so why didn't you mention this before? And he goes, oh, well, you know, nobody asked us. I mean, you know, you've got to wonder. Then you had yesterday, and this is this really difficult thing the the malaysians bring a whole bunch of relatives of people who are on the plane over to kuala lumpur and they arrive in kuala lumpur and i suppose they thought oh well, now we're in kuala lumpur we're going to be told what's happening mm. the brutal truth is the malaysians don't know what's happening they really don't i don't think they're hiding if they knew why on earth wouldn't they say they're getting increasingly hysterical so yesterday you know, there's a, a daily press conference in, in the early evening with the um, uh, communications minister. And I've watched other a few officials. of these, and I've got to tell you, the body language is going around the It is planet. a bit, isn't it? But these, uh, two of these relatives tried to get into the press conference, and they were pretty hysterical. So what do the Malaysians do? Oh, you know, you have to wonder at, at who commands these things. They go, oh, that's right, let's drag them out in view of the full view of the world's media. I mean, I know there isn't a good way of dealing with this, but there are less bad ways of doing it. One of the less bad ways of doing it would be to say, boy, this is a big problem. Uh, if they're really intent on coming in here, let them come in. We can't hold the press conference while they're, 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 they're shouting at the officials. But, you know, it's better than in front of the world's media dragging them out. It's better after having dragged them out blocking all media access to the relatives. I mean, you know, the relatives... That's what they tried to do, but a bit too late. Well, but, but you know, this thing about a picture tells uh, yeah, 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 yeah. A, a thousand words. I mean, what people saw as images of this was police blocking uh, the media from having access to the relatives, the relatives screaming hysterically and demanding, because you could see they had banners, demanding that the... Um, 
Malaysian government furnishes them with more information. As I say, the objective fact of the matter is the Malaysian government doesn't actually have any information to give them, which is very bad. I know it's very bad and it's very unfortunate. But, hey, um, what you're doing here is... At best, really at best, damage limitation. I'll tell you what it reminded me of a little bit, because I caught that, I think it was Rupert Wingfield Hayes, he was broadcasting live from a building inside, mm. right, uh, and there's a bunch of uniformed Malaysian guys yes, behind him. But he had that tone of voice that they have when they do doorstepping in Tiananmen yes. Square and stuff. Yes. And he's, he's looking a bit sheepish, but he's giving the story. And I didn't, I'm like, why are all these policemen or soldiers standing behind him? So basically, now I know. And he's saying, of course, and this has just happened, blah, blah, blah. And as you can see, nobody, you know, yes. he, he was right in front of this. Well, and, and it did remind me of when they do that stuff in Beijing. As I say, I mean, you know, you, you, you've got to... Um, um, the the images are important. You've got to d- d- limit the damage. Uh, limit the damage. I mean, it, it's not easy. I, I mean, it's just all right for us to sit in an air conditioned studio and say, "Oh, they should do this. They should do that." I'm not saying that. Yeah. But what I am saying is that there are ways of doing things badly, and they keep doing it. And you know, I mean, piled into this mixture, you have the Chinese government and the state-controlled media criticising the Malaysians for lack of transparency. Ooh, good morning. I'm just thinking, this is a country that knows something about lack of transparency. Pot, kettle black. I mean, this is just ludicrous, really. Do you know what made me... What made me react a little bit last week, Xi Jinping talking about this through a translator, and right at the end, well, on our news clip, it said, human life comes first, or something very similar to that. Mm. I mean, you know? Yes, well... You know, I, I mean, if, if I seriously believe for one moment that there was a natural disaster or indeed a man-made disaster in China and there was full instantaneous transparency and information about what was going on, I would be delighted. We've yet to see that happen ever. So, you know, I, I, I think people who Pops want to kettles. jump onto the uh, high ground on this one need to at least look at their own record before before doing so. I mean, you know, the the... the the other thing that we don't know, and what we don't know is legion, but, but this seems to me a rather important thing that we don't know, is there are now 26 countries involved in the search and rescue effort. What we really don't know is whether they're cooperating or not. Now, you might think... With each other. Yes. You might think, well, that's pretty damn obvious. You know, they're all sharing a common objective. But increasingly, evidence is coming out that... Nothing of the kind is happening. Well, your Thai thing was a case in point. Well, the Thai thing is an example. Um, the Chinese won't talk to the Vietnamese, although they're searching the same um, territorial waters, uh, which are incidentally contested between China and Vietnam, but that, I suppose, is one reason why... One well, there reasons, is all that to chuck in as well. There's of all of that to chuck in. Um, you know, are the Americans who have probably the most sophisticated surveillance equipment, are they sharing that with everybody? Honestly, we don't know the answers to this. My very, very deep suspicion is that none of this information is being shared in, in a fulsome way. And it's quite interesting, when the Malaysian um, acting communications minister is asked about this, he always says, well, you know, there are operational considerations. That's um, official speak for no. So it's gone political. It's I mean, gone ve- well. This very is political. you know, like all of these. I mean, you, you think of things that happen between nations that aren't political, and you can put it on the top of a very small postcard. L- you think of something like this, which is major. 
I mean, I, I do believe that, that all of these countries, all 26 countries, I mean, they're not all equally involved, but all 26 countries genuinely are determined to, to help and to find this plane or the remnants of this plane, which seems to be more likely at this stage. And um, that is a case. But are they really sharing information with each other? Oh, I, I very, very much doubt that. A lot of one-upmanship has started. I want to ask you about how usually... Um, when a catastrophe or crisis happens, the newsboys handle it. Uh, so, you know, in terms of time, because what's happened here is um, they have to broadcast this, they have to talk about this, mm. but there plainly isn't anything to talk about. So, so, so into the vacuum goes yeah. nonsense. Yeah. I mean, let's look How at some of the How many rivets on the wings and stuff. Uh, or, or, or worse, or worse. I mean, you look at the shameful, and, and the word shameful and Daily Mail in, in Britain go together very often. You look at the shameful that. reports that the Daily Mail in London was carrying about the pilot, who they suddenly decided was a Muslim fanatic. Now, actually, most Malays in Malaysia are Muslim. That's, that's not the world's best-kept secret. But you add the word fanatic to Muslim and you start to paint a picture of a Taliban or something like that. What actually is happening is the pilot, who's a very experienced pilot, is a friend of Anwar Ibrahim, who's the leader of the opposition. There is a visceral dislike bordering on hysteria among the um, Malaysian government towards Anwar. No kidding. And so if they can somehow pin this tragic event onto the leader of the opposition or an associate of the leader of the opposition, they're very happy to do so. And they've tried sort of to do that. There isn't, and I think we need to really stress this, there isn't a shred of evidence that the pilot sabotaged his own plane, intended to do something bad. There isn't a shred of evidence of this. What they have done is seized from his house, rather dramatically, a flight simulator. And they've concluded that this man who devotes his life to flying planes is indeed a fanatic. But he's I, I a fanatic read, about flying. I read some stuff yesterday from Daily Mail. And yeah. they did it. Interesting, Steve, the power of words or the omission of words. It... it, it Highlights, you know, bullet points, a few things. I'm like, I said, is this the, is this the London, is this the English paper? Mm. And it said, relatives of those missing from China have threatened to go on strike. That's what it said. Yeah. But well, what, they missed out the word hunger. Yes. And that, well, doesn't that totally and utterly change? Well, I, I mean, there. you know, I, 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 there, there are a few certainties in life, and one of them is don't ever go to the Daily Mail if you want information about what's happening. They're coming up with some crackers, though, aren't They're they? They're coming up with some crackers, and they are simply baseless. I mean, if it does turn out that somehow the pilot or even the, 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 the deputy pilot is involved with the disappearance of the plane... That information needs to be looked at. Of course it does. Yeah. But the simple fact of the matter is there isn't any information to that effect. All we do know is that the Malaysian Prime Minister on Saturday said there was a high likelihood, a high likelihood that the um, communication system was turned off on the plane itself so that the problem occurred on the plane. Now, even if that's true, and he couldn't say definitively that it was true, you can't axiomatically say it was turned off by the pilot. We just don't know that. We don't even know whether it was turned off in the plane, as he says, because, again, you know, you can't know these things for sure. So we're dealing with likelihoods that are turned into certainties that are then morphed into bigger and bigger stories and more and more rubbish. I think everyone needs to sit down a bit and, and accept the humbling fact that even in this day of advanced communication, 
there's a hell of a lot that we don't know. And in this instance, most of it we don't know. In fact, do we really concretely know one thing more today than we knew 12 days ago? And I'd have to say, actually, the answer is no. I've got it in front of me now, and they've got some more bullet points up there. Um, mostly fairly reasonable. The this was of, an earlier story, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah, than the yeah, one you're, you're, yeah. you're looking at. It was indeed. Um, investigators believe plane most likely flew into the southern Indian Ocean. That's what they're saying. And that's in bold. Now, you're a newspaper man. You wouldn't write that. No, no, not for a moment. I mean, I know, for example, today, and, and you know, every day there's new speculation, the, the Australians are saying that they've now focused in on a 100-kilometre um, square area i mean it doesn't sound very small but in terms of the search so far it is narrowing it down they they say they've narrowed it in according to their research to this area which is somewhere close to the andaman islands well you know we had other reports that it was definitely somewhere near malacca it was definitely here and there in the indian ocean i mean you know until we know we don't know and um the daily mail knows less than most because they've got an atrocious record. What's today's day? It's the 20th, right? This is their today one. Now, but question, Steve, are they not doing the right thing? Because they are now going back to talking about people. Yes, it's a different group of people. Their headline, you are traitors to us, you've let us down, tell us the truth. Screaming family members of missing MH370 passengers are dragged out of press conference demanding answers. As Malaysian officials say, Maldives plain sighting not true. So... But, and then their pictures, of course. This is worth mm. checking out if you're listening. Dailymail.co.uk, how different papers take different angles yeah. on these stories. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, why wouldn't you be distraught if you were a, a relative of somebody on that flight? I mean, the uncertainty of not knowing for this period of time whether your relatives or loved ones, whatever they are, are alive or dead must be excruciating. I mean, I, I, I'm not in any way um, detracting from the pain that these people have, but... You don't, I'm afraid to say, look to them for objectivity in these circumstances. I mean, what they're basically demanding from the Malaysian authorities is to give them information they don't have. And that, I'm afraid to say, is an unreasonable demand. I want to go back to papers, if I may, because it's really fascinating to me how a different paper yeah. will do different things. You get some financial rag that's mm. going to say, shares hit the deck in Asian international carrier. Or, or I've even heard on a local radio station, the uh, name of which... Go right, on, what, what, uh, what? Uh, 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 You know, stock market plunges. And then you see that it's gone down 100 points, which, you know, in the stock market business is is a sneeze. You heard that on this station? Um, I, I might have done. Well, it's true. How very dare you. <laughs> Back with Steve after the news. Making out Morning Brew for Thursday. Steve Vine's still in with me. You can wake up now. Hello, good morning. Again. Choppy chop, right. A <laughs> couple of emails here. One will take us on, but the first one from Brett, it's just a comment, really. He said, uh, on a serious note, it turns out fairly easy to nick an aeroplane. It's the best possible place to do it, he said, as most everybody down there doesn't get along all that well with each other, and especially with the glorious motherland, very <laughs> simply put. but Yeah, I'm not sure it is that easy, but still. It's fun to read it out. Uh, yeah. All right, then, let's go to uh, one from Steve that takes us on somewhere else. Now, this, um, he's sort of commenting on a feeling he had after listening to this morning's back chat, but it's about a bigger issue. He's basically saying, you know, today's discussion regarding source of energy, a great example of the failure of the Hong Kong government and governments around the world to wake up and address serious issues. He said the topic of where we get our energy and the types of production for this also goes back to the situation of waste disposal, global warming, etc, etc. So uh, basically they chatted about this on Backchat this morning and had some governmenty types and experts on. 
When there are professionals giving sound advice and options to help resolve these problems, which could hopefully make all the difference for future generations, we still have to be governed by politicians who appear to do nothing more than pay lip service to such issues and cock up the implementation of almost all government policy, polls and consultations. He says, pa, what a crock. I seriously worry for the world we leave behind. But, I mean, I think the fundamental flaw in his argument is that in, in Hong Kong... Of course, we don't have. You, 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 I know they're much maligned, but we don't, in fact, have politicians making <laughs> making decisions. We have bureaucrats making decisions, because there are no legal political parties in Hong Kong. There is no elected chief executive. I, I'm going through a litany of things. No, that you've I got think it bang on. Every listener will be aware of. We have a legco that can't make laws, a legislator that can't make laws. I mean, every time I say that, people look at me and they say that can't possibly be right, but it is. Um, so what you have is big issues, and he's quite right to talk about the big issues. I mean, there's nothing bigger than en- sources of energy supply, climate change. I mean, these are things that are facing everybody in the world. But the point is that in a system where you have experts providing advice and you have po- politicians responsible for allocating source uh, scarce resources and making strategic plans for the future, there is at least some small hope that you'll come out with... Um, with solutions I'd have to say that the record so far isn't that reassuring and politicians cannot be relied upon to be the best judges of these things but you know it's one of these things where at the end of the day it's probably better than all other systems that have been tried but in Hong Kong you have no chance of this because you have no political system. You don't have anybody who's accountable to the electorate making decisions. You have a bunch of bureaucrats. And bureaucrats, first of all, hate, hate long-term planning because they know that things can always be wrong. They like building big buildings because that's a predictable way of doing things for the future. So, you know, build the bridge to nowhere over to Macau, build, build this, build that. Oh, it's other folks' money, so it doesn't matter how much it costs. But a more... Uh, if you like intangible problems such as where are we going to get our energy supplies from for the next three decades there is of course a concrete way of doing this but boy there's so many pitfalls so maybe the best way to deal with that is to just deal with it on a year-to-year basis and sort of fudge it round the edges yeah. and say that um you know we're working very hard on this and we've set up a commission we, we, we usually set up a commission because that's always good well i mean the the air quality thing has just become a joke yes. i mean let me put it into perspective <coughs> ralph pixton used to talk about this with 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 similar if not the same government officials what steve's on about here is you know back chat and sometimes us Backchat inv- invites real experts, guys mm. who care, really care mm. about getting these problems fixed. They're professors and doctors and this, that and the other. They and know how happen. to do it. And I think what Steve means is no one listens to them. They're no, giving no. you the bleeding obvious. Because, <laughs> because, because it, 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 it involves that weird thing called vision. I mean, you know, you can't fix air quality in a year. You can't secure energy supplies in a year. You have to have a strategic frame of mind for doing this over a very long period of time uh, they use the word sustainability as though it doesn't mean anything but it actually means something very obvious it does it means that it will last yes yeah. so- <laughs> but i mean also i've heard this you know i've heard this time quite a bit myself so somebody will come on it's the times when you and i want to smack our heads and say 
ain't that obvious. Well, no, we must have missed something here. Because yeah. this is really obvious. It's totally doable. Yeah. It really benefits lots of people. Yeah. And then and then one of the guys will say, yes, well, we're looking into a consultation and da-da-da-da-da-da. I think that's what Steve's on about. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, by the way, Steve. Yeah. I, I, I always think the best example in Hong Kong, because it's just so obvious is, and, and we've talked about it before, but I'll just throw it in again, is this balmy thing in Hong Kong where there are three ways to cross the harbour. And instead of um, trying to even out the traffic flow between these three tunnels, you, you price them differently so that one tunnel is barely used, one is partially used, and one is very heavily used. Now, I mean, anybody who ran a government which was accountable would look at that and say, oh, for goodness sake... If we're going to have three cross-harbour tunnels, we'll price them all the same. So at least we have a chance of spreading the traffic evenly throughout throughout the um, the cross-harbour area. I mean, these are the sort of obvious things that the sort of government we have at the moment is oblivious to. Because what it listens to are particularly powerful lobbies... Who, who have the ear of Beijing, who have the ear of powerful people, and the rest of the people are... Well, you know, they're the rest of the people, aren't they? I mean, do, do, have you ever met them? They're ghastly. They mock on... They, they flock onto the MTR. Yeah. Fill it up. Let Gosh. them eat noodles. Yeah. But there is... There is a, there's a very interesting thing also popped out this week, which didn't get much publicity. And it, it, it's a small sign that the government wants to crawl into the 21st century. And I think that's, that's, that's always to be welcome. And the small sign is that they're looking into raising the retirement age for civil servants from 60 to 65. Now, you may say, oh, isn't it already 65? Well, it isn't. And you may wonder why it was 55 until very recently. And the reason it I know was, a couple of blokes that retired at the age of 55. <laughs> I can tell you that was a very good idea. It was good for them. <laughs> it was good for them. But, I mean, this does raise all sorts of very interesting questions because um, in, in most countries in the world now, particularly in the developed world, where people are living longer and are healthier into an old age, and yeah. I ought to admit a, a conflict of interest here because I've just completed a youth training scheme. And, <laughs> no. um, Job club. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that you, in, in other countries they're now understanding that, you know, the arbitrary age of 60 isn't really an age when people have lost all their faculties to work. Indeed, they may well be bringing to the job a wealth of experience and knowledge and all the rest of it, which, you know, frankly, is pretty damn useful. So you look at it in those objective lights. Of course, if you're in Hong Kong and you're in the civil service, you say, ah, but we have a system where your pension is dependent on how many years you work. So well, not everybody's longer, pension these days. Well, that's true. Not a lot, a lot of people aren't. But I'm talking about the, those who are on the yeah, pension, right, right. pension uh, ladder. So if they work longer, uh, we'll have to pay them more. Well, that's true. But yet again, like all these bureaucratic problems, it can be overcome. There is one substantial problem that I think really is a real problem and that is if all the old guys stick around forever the chances of promotion for younger people who are, who are quite bright and you know want to some of them <laughs> want to rise up the ladder a block because you've got all the old incumbents sitting in the chairs i mean that that is a problem you need to find a way of overcoming that but the basic thing is and if i may now talk from the other side of the fence i mean for for many many years i was an employee i'm now an employer of people I'd have to say that my preference when people come for a job is I tend to pick older people 
because or the right person for the job. Well, the right person for the job, but by and large, I have Casting, to admit, darling. I have a I have a a, a prejudice in favour of older people. Because in Hong Kong, older people, in my experience, in the catering business, which is my business, have a fantastic work ethic. They bring experience to the job. And, you know, unless proved otherwise, if there were two vaguely equal candidates, See, mm-hmm. I would probably go for the older one, just on those grounds. The thing is, uh, in terms of the government, <coughs> you talk about the very young people. I mean, you know, talented people, great, everybody deserves a crack at it. But the very young people tend to be very junior people who are running scared. They are petrified of their bosses, and you wonder why nothing gets done. Yeah, well, that's if you've got a company that's run on the f- tremble and fear basis, which is a like- lousy way of running a company. <laughs> yeah. Or... A civil service, maybe. Well, maybe. I mean, not just here, though. Yeah, not just here. Not at all just here. All over the place. Good morning to Chris. He said, good morning, gentlemen. One of the major problems uh, with the government is a complete unwillingness to confront anyone. Well, yes and no, actually. It's a complete uh, unwillingness to confront powerful people. It's not a Maybe that's what he means. I, 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 I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is that... Um, they're quite happy to upset and confront the, the, the powerless. I mean, you know, that happens every day. Mm, absolutely. Right now it's about nine minutes, two few more minutes. Thanks for your emails so far. Morningbrew at rthk.hk. What do you want to go on to? Well, I think we can't really um, I- ignore, because it's such an enormous thing, what's happening with these attacks on journalists. Speaking as someone who's also a journalist, I'm, I'm against it, but speaking as a member of the public, I'm broad. also against it. Broad daylight. In broad daylight. So now we have... We, we, it's a month on since Kevin Lau was viciously attacked, the former chief editor of Ming Bao. We've now got these two news executives from a new paper called the Hong Kong Morning It hasn't started news. yet, hasn't correct? It hasn't started okay. yet, yeah. and it's apparently a paper that's sort of in a shadow way being um, set up by the Oriental Press Group, so we don't really know too much about what that paper is. But the fact of the matter is, um, as they say, you know, once could be a coincidence, twice looks much less like a coincidence. Do we really need to wait for a third attack on members of the media before we conclude, oi, there's something very worrying going on here? Bearing in mind the body these people are working for, doesn't it strike you as a bit odd? It does. I mean, I, 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 are, are, is the attack on, on Kevin Lau and these two people connected? I, I certainly wouldn't say that at this stage, given the, the, the amount of knowledge that we have. But I, I am worried that these are attacks on journalists for the simple fact that they're not just attacks on journalists. They're attacks on, on the media. They're attempts to intimidate the media. And that is bad for everyone. I mean, I, I don't think you can overstress this. This isn't a problem for journalists. It's a problem for the community because it's to do with the free flow of information. If I may, for a couple of minutes, I want to talk about the two guys that have been lifted. Now, there's a, a, a post... These are the lifted for Kevin for Lau. For Kevin, yeah. Uh, <coughs> something I read on a mate's Facebook page and... Um, he, he says on this, I may be wrong, tell me if I'm wrong. So he, he quotes it, he says, the police have charged two men in connection with the chopper attack, uh, the pair accused of wounding Mr Lau, and of course he goes on, he says, wounding and theft, question mark, theft being the motorbike, wounding and theft, are you joking, not even wounding with intent to cause GBH, which can earn life. Why didn't they just give him a golden bauhinia and a pat on the head? Wounding is a three-year sentence. But then um, he says, even conspiring to commit murder can bring life. Even sending a letter threatening to murder can get you 10 years. Um, But he says, am I right in just saying wounding? Well, I'm not 
uh, and they can still incidentally bring further charges. There's usually a holding charge and then further charges. I don't know in this instant whether that will happen. But there's some very odd aspects of this case. Oh, he just Sorry, Steve, he just says, Hong Kong has had it. I'm amazed they didn't settle for charging them for shoplifting and a knife. <laughs> well, it, it, I'm sorry to laugh about this because it is actually a rather serious matter. I know but, it is. You know, on top of the two people who've been arrested and charged, things get very weird. If you recall, nine other people were charged with conspiracy in this matter. This is a serious wounding. And stone me. They're out on bail. What's that all about? Yeah, I'm sure that's part of this guy's beef too. Well, I, I, I would very much hope so, because that's bizarre in the extreme. I mean, you know, um, I think this is called serious bodily harm, and there's no doubt this was seriously serious bodily harm. If you've got nine other people involved in a conspiracy to do that, and they let out on bail... If you've got a police chief who has ruled out anything to do with the media as being a motive for the attack, you, you seem to have somebody in charge of this operation who's already got a closed mind as to why it occurred. And thirdly, so you've got a number of people on bail, you've got a police chief who've ruled out the motive, you've got two happy triad fellows who, who've been brought back from the mainland, what is the smallest, smallest possibility of finding the real person behind the attack? 